It's great to be with you today. Welcome those here on site and those worshiping online. So this is an exciting week. This is Easter week. And just a a couple of announcement things before we dive into the text and the message for this weekend. First of all, would invite all of you uh, to join us Good Friday, this coming Friday at 4 and 6 p.m. We'll have two services here on site and we'll stream that 6 o'clock Good Friday service online. And then Easter, of course, we'll have Saturday service at 6. And Jen will be up here in a, at the end of the message and go into all those details for Easter. But I would just like to encourage, encourage all of you to register early, if you will. Uh, we've had lots of conversation on staff about how many folks to expect. And we know that things are van- ramping up and um, people are being vaccinated. And so we just want to make sure that we are prepared as possible. So it would really help us. And you can either call the church and register for one of those services, or the easiest way is by going to the website and doing that. And then following Easter, we are going to celebrate Missions Month in the month of April. If you've been a part of the ACAC family for any given amount of time, you know that that normally happens in October, but there was this thing called COVID that happened last year that delayed it. And so we are going to celebrate and really just dive into missions in the month of April. And so I invite you to be a part of that and I'm excited about those things that are coming. One of the things with Missions Month, as I was thinking about that, I have had the incredible opportunity to to be in countries such as El Salvador and Haiti, Peru, um, Kenya, and Zimbabwe, just for, for missions work. And I don't know how many of you either, whether it has been through missions or just travel personally, vacation or work, but how many of you have traveled some? You've been out of the country. Okay, good. Have you ever noticed when you travel that there are often statues, and we have them here in the States too, but there are statues with men with swords on horses. No matter where you go, you know what I'm talking about? You've got that visual in your head already. Like you go to an area or you go to a park and there is this big dude with a sword in one hand and the reins of a horse of another. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. And uh, these guys are gonna put a few pictures up. So this is in China. Okay, this is Genghis Khan. Now, he doesn't have a, well, there's a sword by his side. He doesn't have it in his hand, but this is what I'm talking about. This next one is actually from Argentina. This is uh, Jose de San Martin, who led um, an independence for the country of Argentina. This next one is Joan of Arc. This, this is in Canada. And so this is what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Um, this next one is St. George. This is in the country of Sweden. You'll find that statue there. And then even in India, uh, I am going to mess this up. And my dear friend, uh, George Thomas, is going to probably correct me later. But Raul Laxmi Bai, I don't know if I got that correct. But this is in India. They even have one. And then one of my personal favorites from Mexico, since I'm Hispanic, is Pancho Villa. And you'll notice he has a pistol, not a sword. But uh, this is Pancho Villa. And then here in the United States, you can go to Washington, D.C. And of course, George Washington. And I don't know if you recognize this or not, but here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church, we're right next door to Allegheny Commons Park. Did you know we have one of these in our park? We do. Let me show you a picture. So this is on our own backyard. This is George Washington. Now, 
What's the point you're saying? Well, these statues, as you recognize, they are meant to memorialize military might and power. They're meant to memorialize and celebrate conquest. It's why, as I said, they often have the reins of the horse in one and a sword in another. And if you will, of course you knew I was going to have a sword tonight. Today, I have a sword with me. Now, I, we're not going to do this. I was really tempted to have you guess. One of our pastors on staff, this is their sword. So we'll do a poll some point later. You can figure out who that is. And the staff was laughing because I just, anytime I could find an excuse this week to unsheath the sword, I would do it. I mean, there's just something like you give a man a sword and he, I just like, you stand up a little bit taller and you feel like Sir Lancelot or or uh, whoever, a pirate or something like that. But sword just represents power. It just, there's something about it that represents conquest and battle and power. And interestingly enough, when you combine the sword with a horse, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I really hadn't until I was preparing for this message. But throughout scripture, horses actually are not looked upon in a favorable light. They're considered war horses. Now, it's not that God has anything against this beautiful animal that he created. But in scripture, horses are often connected to war and battle. There's a verse in Proverbs that says the horse is made ready for the day of battle. We have gone through the book of Genesis. And in Moses, um, Moses wrote after the Egyptian army um, was conquered at the Red Sea, Moses write, writes, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed glorious, gloriously. Horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. Okay, so Alan, what is the point of the horse, the statues, and the sword and how it relates to Palm Sunday weekend, this triumphal entry, if you will? Well, some 500 years before the very first triumphal entry, that first day of Holy Week, when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, there was a prophet named Zechariah. And we have to understand what was happening with the Israelites at this time. So this is about 500, actually about 550 years before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And at the time, Darius of the Persian Empire was king and he ruled the Bible area. He was king of the Persian Empire. And the Israelites were under oppression of the Persians and they were living in exile. Well, Zechariah spoke out and he wrote about an anticipated Jewish king who would ride into a city, but he would free the Israelites of oppression. Yet this ruler and this king would not come wielding a sword and he would not come into Jerusalem riding a war horse. He would come riding a donkey. And look what Zechariah writes. Zechariah says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's talking. He says, Righteous, he is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble riding on a donkey. In fact, riding on a donkey's colt. And Zechariah says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel. This is what this rider will do. I'll remove the chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all of the weapons used in battle, all the swords, 
and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Yet despite Zechariah's prophecy, despite these incredible words of hope that they would have been to the Israelites, 547 years later to be exact, Jerusalem was still under the oppression of people. In fact, they were under the oppression of the Persians and then the Greek empire came in and oppressed them and now today they were living under Roman oppression. Jerusalem was still not free. The only thing that had changed was the name of their oppressors. But so here we are now in about 30 AD, as as I said, 547 years after Zechariah wrote these words, in a day that we would be known and celebrate this weekend as Palm Sunday, the very first day of Holy Week. And this would be the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, and it would be the fulfillment of a new kingdom that would be ushered in. However, this kingdom would be unlike any other kingdom that this world had ever seen. It would not be a kingdom of military might, swords and horses. No, this kingdom would be completely different. This wouldn't be a kingdom that is led by a sword. This kingdom would be one of peace. This kingdom would be one of kindness and of self-sacrifice And this kingdom would be one that's led by a cross. We have talked a lot about faith this year and we will continue to do so. Our theme here at ACAC, I'm gonna keep it in front of us, is it is by faith. So as people that are living by faith, as a church that is striving to live by faith, we understand that, and we've talked about, faith is far more than believing, far more, far more than just trusting or thinking good thoughts or hoping. Faith, as we understand and we've talked about, is what? Allegiance and loyalty. To who? To a king and to a kingdom. So as we now celebrate this Palm Sunday on the road to resurrection, here's what we're gonna discover today, that Palm Sunday and Jesus's triumphant entrance into Jerusalem are about recognizing the difference between two opposing kingdoms and what is our role as faithful ambassadors to God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I believe that this week as I was praying and preparing to share a very familiar story to a lot of us, one that we've learned since Sunday school that involves palm branches and a donkey and shouts of Hosanna. That you put a burden and a message in my heart about two kingdoms. Two kingdoms that are not only at war with each other, but your people are stretched and we find ourselves in the middle and there's tension between how to, to live in this world but yet be faithful and loyal and allegiant to your kingdom that is so opposite of the kingdom of this earth. So I pray that my words would be clear today. But even more than that, I pray that, Lord, the spirit of God would flow through me and penetrate hearts and minds and ears. Lord, I am an imperfect, 
perfect vessel needing your anointing. Would you come today in the name of Jesus? And everyone said, amen. Amen. So question for you. Did you know that on the day we celebrate as Palm Sunday that there most likely were two triumphal entries into Jerusalem? There were two processionals. There were two marches or even two demonstrations, if you will, each representing two significantly different kingdoms. As I've already said, one was a kingdom of the sword and the other was a kingdom of the cross. And as I was researching and preparing for this message this week, I discovered that there are biblical scholars. In fact, it was Marcus Borg and John Crossan's book called The Last Week that gave some insight. It was a book that was written about seven, eight years ago and New Testament scholars have affirmed that it is quite possible that Pontius Pilate, a name that you probably are familiar with, would have had a triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the same day that Jesus did. So these two processions, if you would, would have come into Jerusalem, this city that's filled with people and a lot of tension that we've talked about already over the last couple weeks because it was Holy Week. And like other governors, Pontius Pilate, would have lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, about a 60-mile journey west of Jerusalem. Now, as governor of the Roman Empire, or as governor of over the Judea, Judea there, it was Pontius Pilate's responsibility to make sure that Judea was under control. And we talked about how tensions are high and people were returning for Passover into Jerusalem, so it was really busy. Tensions were high with the Israelite people because they wanted to see the Roman government overthrown. And so most likely Pilate would have taken the 60-mile journey and he would have entered Jerusalem from the west. And if you can imagine, if you will, I mean, this is a movie type of scene where Pontius Pilate would have been there with a sword riding on a war horse. There would have been legions of army and leather Um, leather and red and gold and you know the golden eagles held high on a pole and I mean it would have been a display of Roman imperial power this would have been a sign that Pontius Pilate was coming in to say Israelites you may be the people of God but we Romans are your masters And it would have been a visual reminder to them of the power and the oppression that they were under. And so this is the backdrop that we need to read Jesus's triumphal entry that we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Of course, they'll pull here or your phone, whatever you have. I want you to go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Hopefully, in my weekly update, you saw I asked you to read verses 1 through 10. So let's look at that together. Here we go. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and they found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say and they were permitted to take it. 
Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. This is the part we're really familiar with. They spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of this procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God. Other gospels say they were shouting, Hosanna. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings, catch this, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. Praise God in the highest of heaven. So I already painted the picture of Pilate making his procession. So while Pilate was coming in with the army and the armor and all of the pomp and circumstance and the power of the Roman imperial government behind him, he was coming in from the west. And while he was doing that, here Jesus is coming from the east. The Bible says that he was coming from Jericho, from the east. And there would have been the 12 disciples with him and pilgrims from the area of Galilee that were coming. And they were coming with anticipation, not just to celebrate the Holy Week, but we have to get in our minds that these folks were anticipating that Jesus was bringing a revolution. They were anticipating him being the Messiah. Remember Zechariah's prophecy? The one that would free the people from oppression. They're thinking back to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, and now this Messiah, this king, although he's not riding on a war horse, he's riding in on a donkey, he would be the one that would initiate a new kingdom. They mentioned King David. They were thinking that this kingdom would come and be like the powerful kingdom of King David from years gone by, and Israel would rule, rule the world. In all honesty, they were probably anticipating Jesus' procession or march to be very much like Pontius Pilate. They would have wanted that type of display of power. They were anticipating a military overthrow. They were ready to pick up their swords. All they were waiting for was Jesus to say the word. Think about it. I remember, I don't know if ACA, ACAC ever did this, but when I was a child and growing up at church, we did cantatas and Easter plays. Did we ever do that here? Okay, some of you are now like, yeah, we should do that. Okay, so I remember, you know, when I was a little kid growing up in church, we did that and they'd give all the kids palm branches. And I mean, the church I went to, Jesus literally came in on a donkey and it was like, I mean, it was that big of a deal. And remember, it was just... As Sunday school kids, you learned like this was a worship thing and we were shouting Hosanna and Hosanna, does anyone know what Hosanna means? Save us, okay? And the literal translation is save us, comma, now, exclamation point. And we wave palm branches. Well, too often we think that this was like a worship service, that Jesus was coming in and people were worshiping him. But what we need to understand is that this was a nationalistic cry to be relieved from Roman oppression. Let me explain. The shouts of Hosanna, save us now, were not spiritual cries of salvation. They weren't crying, Jesus, you're the king who's come to die for our sins, save us spiritually. They were saying, Jesus, save us now from this Roman oppression. Do you see the difference? And it's interesting that the Israel symbol, the national symbol was a palm branch. 
Pastor Blaine last weekend spoke about the image and the image of Tiberius that was on the coin. Remember that? Interestingly enough, the la- interesting enough, the last coin that the Israelites made when they were free was a coin that had the image of a palm branch on it. See, that palm branch was a sign of liberation. And so while we maybe took a, self, a Sunday school approach to it and saw it as a worship service, this was nationalistic fervor. They were looking at Jesus to overthrow. And here, Jesus enters Jerusalem from the opposite direction of Pilate, from the east rather than from the west, and he enters in the opposite type of manner than Pilate had entered the city. Instead of riding on a war horse with a sword, Jesus comes in, not even on a donkey, but on a donkey's colt, headed towards a cross. You see, what we see on Palm Sunday are two parades, two marches, two demonstrations, if you will. But they're two very opposing marches, two very opposing demonstrations, one from the west, one from the east, one on a horse, one on a donkey, one with a sword, one heading towards a cross, one deriving its power by crucifying its enemies and anyone who would speak against the Roman Empire, one that would enforce its power using dominating systems, the other deriving its power by saying, forgive and love your enemies and ultimately laying down your life for others. So this leads us to ask ourselves this question. Which march, which demonstration, which parade will we be a part of? Which kingdom will we show our allegiance to? On this road to resurrection, allegiance to King Jesus is going to take us to three stops. And these are the three points for this weekend. And here's the first. Allegiance to King Jesus, as we seek to be people of faith, people of loyalty, people allegiant to Christ the King, King Jesus, it will lead to contrasting views of power. You see, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God have two very different views of what power looks like. The kingdom of this world is a power of the sword. The kingdom of God is the power that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of this world takes a power over approach. It looks to oppression and and systems that will dominate and control people and behaviors. The system of God advances by exercising power under, believing that if you serve and you come in humility, that displays a whole different type of power. The kingdom of this world seeks to control behavior by making rules and laws that change behavior. But the kingdom of God says, no, there's a different way. Jesus says, I'm more interested in the heart and the transformation that's happening inside. The kingdom of this world is about protecting one's own self-interest and doing whatever it takes to preserve those self-interests. The kingdom of God is about doing God's will, even if it means dying to self and self-sacrifice. The kingdom of this world is very tribal in nature and polarizing. I think we see that now. It's about listening to voices that all agree. It is very exclusive. 
But the kingdom of God is about loving everyone, including your enemies, and being inclusive of all people. The kingdom of this earth is an eye for an eye or a tit for tat. You hurt me, I hurt you. But the kingdom of God says, no, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. The kingdom of this earth has enemies and goes to war and is willing to fight battles to keep its own way. But the kingdom of God has no earthly enemies, but recognizes we are in a spiritual battle. Two kingdoms, two different approaches. Now these two kingdoms, we're gonna look at it on Good Friday, but these two kingdoms come face to face. You remember when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate? Okay, so now you have two guys that one came in from the West, one came in from the East, and Pontius Pilate has heard a lot about this Jesus. And he's asking Jesus, are you king? And he's trying to figure out, okay, if you're king, what is your kingdom like? And Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, Jesus answers after Pilate says, are you a king? My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would what? They would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Two gospels, the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew tell us that when the soldiers came and they were led by Judas to arrest Jesus, that what did Peter do? And he cuts off the ear of Malchus and Jesus heals him. And Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Are you getting the difference of these two kingdoms? You see, people of faith we're gonna have to decide what kind of power we trust in. We're gonna have to decide what kind of power we will be loyal to. Will we be loyal and lean into the power of the sword or the power of the cross? Here's the second point. Allegiance to King Jesus will lead to a collision of loyalty. As Christians, let me be really frank. We can only be loyal to one kingdom. We can only be loyal to one king. As a follower of Jesus, you and I are gonna come to the place where our loyalties are challenged. And I wanna take a few minutes and I I truly want you to hear my heart. I've prayed about this a lot. But I wanna give you an example where our faith and our loyalty, our allegiance is being challenged right now, and that's in the realm of Christian nationalism. Now, for some of you, I said that, and emotions and thoughts have already triggered. You've either tuned in or tuned out. But please hear my heart. A lot has been said about Christian nationalism. There's a pastor named Jeremy Beller that I believe really has defined it. So before we even begin to talk about what that is. I want us to have the same terms. So here's how I'm defining Christian nationalism, or I'm borrowing the words from Pastor Jeremy Beller. Christian nationalism is the intertwining of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of men. In the American context, it is often displayed by describing America through the language reserved for the kingdom of God. The marriage between patriotism and righteousness further blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. 
You see, there are Christians today who are equating the fate of America with the fate of God's kingdom. Making one political party, whichever it may be, this being God's party, and the other, whichever it may be, Satan's party. Hear me when I say that the cause of any political party or any political candidate is not the cause of Christ. Amen. Nor is the battle, nor is the battle for our nation the battle for the kingdom of God. America, like every nation on earth, is part of a worldly system. It is part of the kingdom of this earth. It is not the kingdom of God, nor is America a special manifestation of the kingdom of God. In fact, God's values, God's principles in his kingdom are often in direct opposition to the fruit or to the results of our nation. And it's not just America. Please hear my heart in this. This is not about America bashing. God's kingdom, God's principles says love your enemies. Says bless those who persecute you. Jesus says if a man steals your shirt, give him your jacket. I think we would all understand there is no nation in this world that can function and operate by loving its neighbors, giving its jacket, or not persecuting those who would come against it. Do you see the difference? There is a difference between this kingdom and God's kingdom. If I can go a little further and be frank, we have aborted 60 million babies since 1973. We lead the world in the making and the exporting of pornography. Our murder rates, our drug use, our alcohol abuse are off the charts as well as violence being displayed. And much of our history has been marked by racial injustice. To equate America with God's kingdom or to merge the cross of Jesus Christ with the flag is idolatrous. And that is the error of Christian nationalism. Please hear my heart today because some of you, you're struggling with this and I I want you to hear what I'm not saying. You may ask, Pastor Allen, are you saying I can't love my country? No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying that I'm a Christian nationalist if I have strong views about the direction of our country? No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying that we shouldn't have men and women of faith in positions of civil leadership in our country and vote for that? No, I'm not saying that at all. We should be incredibly grateful. I have talked about at the beginning of the service of traveling to different countries. We have incredible rights and privileges here in regards to worship. The fact that we're gathering tonight, we have privileges that there are so many countries that do not. I am not minimizing that. I am not minimizing those who have served or are currently serving in our military. We should be so grateful for the men and women who continue to sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy each and every day. However, people of faith must remember that their trust and their allegiance 
are not to the systems and the strategies of this world. The psalmist talks about it in the verse that some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord. The psalmist is saying some trust in the systems and the power and the way that this world works. This. But the psalmist says that will not be the case for my people. We will trust in the name of the Lord. That was Israel's mistake on that first Palm Sunday. They were wanting to use the power and the systems of the world. And Jesus came and said, no, I have a better way. The kingdom of God will be different. Here's the last point. Allegiance to King Jesus will lead to the cross of Christ. Jesus rode into Jerusalem not carrying a sword, but heading towards a cross. I showed you some pictures and we kind of joked a little bit about men with swords on horses. How many of you know you never see a statue of Jesus on a horse with a sword? Every statue you see of Jesus is him nailed to a cross. If we're going to be people that are allegiant to the kingdom of God, it will lead us to the cross of Christ. In fact, Jesus said, if we're going to be his people, if we're going to be his disciples, these are the words of Jesus. If you don't carry your own cross, if you don't die to yourself and your flesh and self-sacrifice and follow me, we can't even be called his disciple. Jesus demonstrated that there was another way. And he calls us to live by another way, a way that is completely opposite of control and power. It's one of love and self-sacrifice. I want to close with giving you this thought. My wife will tell you I, I, I love history and I love biblical history, so it's always a balance for me not to add too much to the message. And, but there's, a, there's an incredible book, if you'll bear with me for a few minutes. I am fascinated by the growth of Christianity after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, under the Roman government, under the Roman oppression, Christianity exploded. And that amazes me. How did Christianity explode in a time where they were being oppressed by the most powerful rulers in the world? There's a great book, I'll throw it out there. It's a bit of a heady academic book for those of you who like it. It's called The Patient Ferment of the early church written by Alan Kreider and it it talks about what was it that led to the growth of Christianity there's a noted sociologist of religion his name is Randy I'm sorry Rodney Stark and he estimates that in the first 400 years of Christianity up through the 4th century now this is pre-Constantine that the Christian population okay so from the time Jesus died and rose from the grave to the fourth century before Constantine, 400 years, those 400 years, that the Christian population had grown to five to six million people in the Roman Empire. Between eight and 12% of the Roman Empire were Christians. I read today that each decade saw about a 40% growth in Christianity. And it wasn't safe to be a Christian. 
but about one in 10 persons living in the Roman Empire chose to become a Christ follower anyway. And I don't know about you, but that leads me to ask the question, so how did nearly 10% of the Roman Empire become Christian after they crucified Jesus? These are things that were happening in the Roman Empire, those first 400 years. There was a thing, we've talked about this before, and you may recognize it. There was a thing called infant exposure. Girls were not, baby girls weren't wanted in couples, and they would take these children and they would throw them in the dumpster. It's our modern-day abortion. There were violent games, gladiator games, if you will, and violence was celebrated, enjoyed, and enjoyed. There was idolatrous social events where they would have meals and parties that would make some of the stuff that's on TV today seem rated PG. And they would do it unto goddesses and gods in the Roman Empire. Sexuality in the Roman Empire, there was no such thing as faithfulness. Homosexuality and even the abuse of children was rampant. Doesn't sound too far off from today. But you know what the Christian's response was to that? It wasn't the sword. It wasn't taking to the streets and looking to overthrow emperors. It was their behavior. They ran to the dumpsters and saved the kids. They said, no, we're not going to go to the gladiatory games. No, I'm going to honor my marriage. Paul writes about it a lot. It's where the letters come from. They lived a different life. They lived a life of the cross, not one of power with a sword, but one that was based in humility, in self-sacrifice. There's an African theologian from 250 AD that says it best, and I'm gonna end with this. This theologian's name is Cyprian. I think I've used this before. It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, Speaking on behalf of Christians, we do not speak great things. We live them. Church, if I can encourage you more than anything, in a a time when all of us, (laughs) in some way or another, have platforms and media accounts and ways where we can communicate a lot, we need to be people like Cyprian that are not known for speaking great things. We need to be known for living them and living them by God's kingdom and his principles. Would you bow your head as we pray? Father, you know I wrestled this week with this message. Because the church of Jesus Christ We live in a day when it itself is being threatened by this idea of two kingdoms. And we need a spirit of unity to be poured out. We need a spirit of power, but not a power of this earth or a power of a sword or the power found in a political candidate or a political party. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray Dear God, that you would speak to us, that it would begin with us at ACAC. 
that, Lord, we wouldn't be a church that talks about great things. We wouldn't be a people that just spews great things. But we would be a people that bows our head, opens our hands, that runs to serve, and humbly carries our cross. Because it's in that posture, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be denied. Would you do that in us, in your name, amen.